Welcome back for another episode of the Beyond Body podcast. I'm your host, Mia Findlay, an eating disorder survivor, advocate, and recovery coach. And this podcast is all about motivating, inspiring, and most importantly, getting real about recovery. As always, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which I am seated and recording today, the Gadigal people. I send my respect to all elders and ancestors and any First Nations people listening. It's been a minute since I've been here. I took a couple of weeks off to attend some personal stuff. I moved out of my apartment, which I think that we all forget how horrendous the moving out process is until we're halfway through it. And then it's a matter of, I regret it, bury me here. I'm never going anywhere ever again. (laughs) So it has also obviously been quite an eventful and distressing couple of weeks with the severe flooding up in Queensland. Lots of people doing it tough and the situation in Ukraine uh, is absolutely devastating. And as much as I like to be someone who comes to the table with solutions, I do not have as much of an ego on me uh, that I'd need to have to think that I have any real tangible solutions other than privately doing the little bit that I can. And just to hold some space for you across my platforms here in this episode today to feel whatever it is you need to feel. We tend to shame ourselves for feeling helpless or powerless and not being able to make as much of a difference as we'd like to. But shaming yourself is not going to make your situation or anyone else's situation any different or any better. So let's drop the shame and give ourselves a bit of a break. In today's episode, I'm going to be answering some of your most taboo off-limits questions about my eating disorder and recovery, and you guys delivered. (laughs) I have a list in front of me of quite a number of questions that I had to whittle down from the huge amount that I was sent. And unlike other Q&As, there was actually very little crossover. Your Questions were very, very specific and really varied. Before we jump into today's episode, I do want to make you aware that we are running a Beyond Your Body Body Neutrality Workshop on the 28th of March. So it is a week-long workshop. Mostly it takes place on Facebook in a private exclusive Facebook group. There are only 25 spaces. There are not many tickets left because this is one of our most popular workshops and we don't run it very often. Like I said, it's a week-long workshop. There is a one-hour presentation, your very own original, beautiful body neutrality workbook that you'll be able to use over and over forever. There are two one-hour Facebook Lives with me at the start and the end of the week, and I am in the Facebook group with you all day, every day, answering your questions, giving you guidance, and most importantly, giving you very real practical, effective body image skills and tools, whether it's in aid of your recovery or you're just wanting to do body image work more generally. So make sure you head to our website, beyondbodycoach.com and go to the events page. That is where you'll be able to register and purchase your ticket. Or if you go to my Instagram, it will be in the bio. So very, very easy to get to. Can't wait to see you there. It's one of my favorite things to present to groups because I still hear so much feedback about how helpful it is all these years later for people who have attended over the course of the almost five years I've been running these programs. So 
with all of that admin done and dusted, let's get into your taboo off-limits questions about my eating disorder and my recovery. So did you feel sad when you stopped binging and purging? Honest answer, yes, 100%, absolutely. And this is for a couple of reasons. One, binging and purging was essentially the only way that I was coping with distressing, uncomfortable emotions, particularly high anxiety. I was not using any healthy ways, not help-seeking, not seeking professional help, not distracting, not journaling, not nothing. It was just this and restriction. It was also a reward system that I set up for myself so that I could restrict. So I would restrict for periods and simultaneously be planning a binge, which would alleviate some of the distress that I was feeling with extended periods of restriction. And it was also, thirdly, the only way that I, through my eating disorder, was allowed to have access to certain foods. So there were certain foods like what we would classically call fear foods, and they are very subjective. There's no point in me detailing those because they depend on the individual. But the only way I was allowed to have access to my fear foods was if they were attached to a behavior like this, like binging and purging. So... It was a lot of stuff to untangle. It was having to expose myself to fear foods without compensating. It was finding better ways of coping and finally acknowledging that this was not in fact coping. Uh, What I was doing was not coping. It was avoiding. I was numbing. All the while, all the issues I was supposedly coping with were worsening under the surface while I was numbing them out. And that I had got myself into this pendulum of behavior of restriction, binging and purging, restriction, binging and purging, and that it had to stop with the restriction. Very often people come to me wanting to work with me as a coach, but all they want to talk about is the binging and purging. And my answer is always, yeah, we'll do that. But as part of that work, we have to look at your restriction. They were the three areas that I had to pay attention to that I really see across the board quite frequently with people who come to me for coaching is using it as a coping mechanism, using it as part of an incentive to restrict and giving yourself permission to have access to foods as long as you're using it with a behavior. Now, it wasn't easy for me to stop using that behavior, but my reason for stopping was very, very specific. So as much as I tell people, you know, binging and purging is something that I just stopped, it is a bit more complicated than that. My binging and purging had left me with a permanent skin condition called rosacea. And that was a corner that my eating disorder backed itself into that it couldn't get out of without admitting that binging and purging was not helping me. So my eating disorder was very, very preoccupied with appearance and looking a certain way. So it was making me use behaviors which were then negatively impacting my appearance in a way it didn't like. It didn't like that I had these red bumps, these very painful bumps all over my face to the point where it wouldn't let me leave the house. So I kind of had to reckon with, well, if this is causing something which makes me so distressed about my appearance, is it really worth using the behavior to alter my appearance? Uh, That doesn't mean that not using the behavior was easy, but it was a contradiction that I could really use as evidence against the eating disorder and got my mind thinking in a different way. But 
they were some of the complications that I had to unpack. And I remember the first time I got a really, really, really strong urge having tried to stop binging and purging when I first went into recovery and literally white knuckling it. And then having the realization, because I'd already done a bit of work in therapy and some of this, you know, exploration of these contradictions that the rosacea brought to my attention. And it was the realization that not only was this not going to work, it had never really worked. It really had just been a sedative. It was like going to hospital with a wound and the doctor's just pumping you full of painkillers and not taking you into surgery to address the wound. And even though you can't feel the pain, the wound is just getting worse and worse and worse. And your tolerance to those painkillers gets you know, more intense. So you need more of the painkillers. Uh, And then eventually they stop working and you're just left with a wound that is so much worse than it was when you arrived at the hospital. That's what eating disorders are. The behaviors are the painkillers and the things it's trying to numb is the wound. And as long as we're numbing it, we're not addressing it. And it's just getting worse and worse until even the painkillers, the behaviors, the eating disorder can't help us anymore. So it was in that moment when I had learned enough through recovery and therapy that I had that painful realization that this isn't going to work and it hasn't worked and I can't fall for that anymore. It was the realization that I knew too much now. I couldn't shove myself back into that dark corner of denial that this time it'll work and this is the last time and I won't need to do this again that was really, really painful. And it's why I think it's so important for us to hold that space for our clients, which I try to do with my own now, that when they express that grief or that sadness or that dissonance of, I still want to do it, but I have this horrible feeling and knowledge that it is so against my instinct because I know too much now, we have to give ourselves space to process that and feel that because that's another part of the absorption of the lie and the denial and the next step towards never needing to use that behavior again, not just wanting, but never needing to, and that need and that want going away. So if you're feeling that, let yourself sit there for a second. Let yourself not just sit there, but also hold eating disorder accountable for the fact that it has lied to you. And it has tried to sell you something and then never, ever come through with the product. Did you fear not being attractive anymore? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I had spent not just the years that I was in my eating disorder, really thinking my value was in my appearance. I spent much of my childhood and teenage years believing that. I grew up in a household and with caregivers who absolutely reinforced that message At the age of 10, I was told by a parent that I really had to lose some weight. Uh, And it was very much because of the aesthetic concern at 10, not even at puberty yet. I mean, wrong to say at any time, but, you know, this was something I had not just internalized. I had breathed it like it was air from my birth. Uh, So, yes, absolutely. I feared not being attractive. I very quickly had to come to terms with does my eating disorders definition of attractive and my healthy self, my core true self, 
does that definition of attractive, do those two things match up? No. The other thing was going and looking for evidence. As much as I had pursued this certain aesthetic and this certain body because my eating disorder told me that was the only way that I could be valuable because I was so deficient in any any other area, my personality, my humor, my intelligence, my contribution, totally, totally insufficient. My looks were the only thing that would make me worthy of someone's time you know, anyone's friendship, a relationship, uh, any measure of success I could attain. The only avenue that I could pursue was my appearance because I was just totally lacking in every other way. Um, But when I looked at the evidence of how I had interacted with other people when I was sick and I was pursuing that thin ideal, I realized I didn't have a lot of evidence to say that anyone was terribly attracted to me when I was disordered. I would go out with my girlfriends and I was in my 20s. So this was, you know, going to clubs, going to bars, having a what should have been a great old time. It looked like it from the outside. For me, it was not from the inside. And I would be with my girlfriends and every single person would get chatted up but me even though at that time I was pouring all of my energy and focus and time into my appearance and it yielded none of the results. And when I look back or started to look back when I entered recovery, it completely made sense. I was so invested in appearance and going back to the bathroom repeatedly to touch up my makeup and being completely in my own head and listening to the chatter in my brain that I remember a lot of that time as being kind of like a Stepford wife. I really had no personality. I didn't make jokes because I didn't think I was funny. I didn't share an opinion because I thought I was an idiot. I didn't connect with people because it's very hard to connect with people over your values when your values are centered around eating disorder values. Because even though we convince ourselves it's normal, if we were to say it out loud, we seem to have an awareness that we shouldn't do that because that's going to make us seem maybe a bit strange or we're aware that people won't probably connect with those eating disorder values. Um, And I really could see that so clearly as I started to go into recovery that it was one of those examples of, you know, eating disorder promised I would be attractive, I would be confident, I would have love, I would have partnership, I would have blah, 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 blah. And I ended up with not only not that, but even less of it than what I started off with. When I went into recovery, I was completely alone. I had pushed all my friends away, my relationship away, my family away. I was unemployed. I was completely cut off. Uh, and that was certainly not the case when I got sick. I was not in a great place, but I had some of those things that I valued. And as I went further and closer towards the eating disorders plans and ideals, I lost more and more of the things it was promising me. And I could see that so clearly as I started to unpack the evidence. I didn't go into recovery and pursue recovery because I loved myself, liked myself and thought I deserved it. I went into recovery and pursued recovery because I realized none of it made sense. (laughs) That all these things that had promised guaranteed uh, had not come to fruition. In fact, it had taken even more than the things it was promising and not uh, presenting me with. So yes, I feared not being attractive, 
by the eating disorder standards, but even when I was trying to be attractive by the eating disorder standards, I had all this evidence to say that that was not getting me to that outcome either. And then I had to investigate what attraction even was. What is it to me as my healthy part of myself versus my eating disorder part? What do I find attractive? What do I see in successful couples? Do I see people who only value each other for their appearance? Do I see people who, you know, if their partner didn't have abs anymore, that they would divorce them or leave them? No, they're not what I term or consider successful, happy, healthy, romantic relationships. That's not what I would think is the core of attraction in relationships that I would like to emulate or have something similar to. Um, When we go to weddings of people who are really solid, strong, wonderful couples, do they just stand up there and talk about each other's appearance? If they do, good luck to those people. Uh, But it's certainly not what I saw demonstrated for me in my life with partnerships that I thought were really beautiful and long lasting and full of respect and admiration and friendship and attraction. But attraction is more than just physical. In fact, I think we can see a lot of examples that if we are just focused on the physical, it is not likely to be a long lasting, healthy, happy relationship. So very long winded answer uh, and very, very subjective to my experience. But uh, it was again about looking at eating disorders claim that without me, you won't be attractive and therefore you won't have X, Y, Z. Well, I don't have it with you. I have less of it with you. Uh, I have to kind of give the other option a bit of a go to see if anything changes. And it did. I got better. My humor came back. My smart ass responses came back. Uh, My personality came back. My interests came back politically, culturally, socially. I connected with people on those things. People could see my passion and my humor. And that's what I connect with people on. Yes, there's a physical element, but just like if I see someone who I find physically attractive and they've got a Stepford vibe going on, there's not a lot for me to connect to. There's not a lot for me to be curious about or interested in. So it's really about exploring those definitions of eating disorders. Um, Like what does it define attractive as versus maybe how your healthy part of you would define it or how you define it when you think about how you're attracted to other people. So just a few things to think about there, but obviously very, very personal when it comes to attraction. What was the most satisfying part of having your eating disorder? Great question. Well, first, I think we've got to look at that word satisfying, given we were just talking about definitions. I think eating disorders use language incorrectly. So when I think about the most satisfying part, I think about the part that was most valuable to me. And that was that it made me feel like I had control in this special way. Uh, The reason my eating disorder bloomed and blossomed and kicked into a high gear when I was 19 is because a whole lot of events happened within my family and within my personal life that were totally out of my control. Witnessing really upsetting things happening to my loved ones, upsetting things happening to me, entire parts of my family being just totally torn apart 
And it gave me this sense that, oh, I can control this. I can feel this complete sense of autonomy and uh, I can be self-determined. And that is part of the illusion. That is part of the appeal and illusion of eating disorders. I think it's no wonder why we've seen such an increase over the last two and a half years since the pandemic started. Uh, We've seen an increase in the number of people suffering and also an escalation in how chronic people's eating disorders are. And I do remember that feeling of, you know, either trying to reach a number on the scale or wanting to see a noticeable change in how my body looked or felt or how clothes sat on my body and getting to that outcome. Um, that felt like control, something which was very important for me to learn. And I, I really hope everyone learns at some point of recovery is that the feeling of control and the function of control are two completely different things. You can feel like you're in control of say your food choices or your choices relating to what happens to your body, but you don't actually have the function of those decisions and that sort of autonomy and and the control that you feel you have. And that is because with every food choice or every movement choice or every choice in relation to your body, those choices have already run through your eating disorder rules and expectations and goals, etc., to determine whether or not you're allowed to do the thing that you're considering doing, right? It's not about preference. It's not about being in the moment. It's not about spontaneity. And do I want this? And do I want it now? It's does this fit into my rules? Does this fit into my goals? Does this fit into my expectations of what my body's meant to be doing? So there's no way that you can be making an on-the-spot decision that is fully in your control because there's already a pre-approved outcome or a rejected outcome that has been decided before it even gets to, do I want this, right? So that is probably the thing that was hard to let go of. And again, sort of like the binging and purging grief, it was the grief of, oh, this isn't real. I'm not really in control. This really isn't a way to escape uh, in moments when life feels out of control. It's about building up resilience and the capacity to cope when life is unfair or life is unpredictable. And I have had to learn that over and over again after recovering. I have gone through experiences that I now consider to be harder than recovery. I used to say recovery was the hardest thing I'd ever done. That has been trumped over and over and over again in the last three years. And I know very, very, very solidly, and I hope it's something you all learn, that your capacity to take care of yourself is your greatest control. Um, not your capacity to numb or shut off or to manipulate your body because that is not you being in control. That is you being controlled by an eating disorder. A good follow-on. How did you not relapse after losing loved ones? So for context, my dad passed away from terminal cancer in August of 2019. My grandmother then passed away in April, May, the last two years are a blur, uh, of 2020. And they were two incredibly important people in my life. I do not have a big family. 
in terms of people I'm close to. I really only have my mum and my sister. So that was a huge percentage of my family gone in just a matter of months. And there were a whole lot of other life things going on around that. But uh, that was obviously the core, really devastating set of events. Uh, How did I not relapse? Because I knew that an eating disorder wasn't a solution to those problems. It was another problem. If I could look at everything I was going through and imagine putting an eating disorder on top of that, worst case scenario, even if we just look at the physiological impacts of an eating disorder, what it does to our brain function, the fact that we need 20% of what we eat every day for our brain to function properly, and that's if we're eating enough for us individually, right? That means that your brain can't cope if it's not eating enough or it's not eating a variety of foods that it needs. There's no way that you can cope with grief or cancer or huge life events if your brain is not sufficiently nourished. So even just physiologically, nightmare on top of everything else. And then there's the fact that To listen to eating disorder chatter takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and it takes away so much of your focus, right? There is no way that you can be fully present, aware, and connected with any percentage of eating disorder remaining in your brain because it's always chatting to you. It's always yelling at you, abusing you, giving you rules, demanding things of you. Uh, It used to wake me up in the night. That's how insistent and loud it could be at times. I couldn't think of anything worse than going through the worst events of my life and having an eating disorder because I had simply done too much work to look at the evidence that this thing had never helped me. It had tried to, it had done its very best. It was terrible at its job. And I had already given it a performance review, looked at all the data and fired it (laughs) and handed the job over to my healthy self. Now, is that to say that I dealt with taking care of my dad or finding my gran passed away in her home, losing two of the core people in my life? Did I deal with that perfectly? Absolutely not. The night that my dad passed away, I think I got to the bottom of a bottle of vodka very, very quickly. Uh, I have no shame around that. I have no guilt around that. I was doing the very best I could after the most hellish three months of my life. I, you know, didn't necessarily reach out as much as I could have. I didn't use all of my skills and tools perfectly. I'm not meant to be perfect because I'm recovered. I still struggled Uh, I, it's still something that I am unpacking to this day, as far as how I deal with my grief and how my grief presents and my, uh, tendency to kind of shove it down and not help seek. I'm not a natural help seeker. Recovery taught me how to do it and why I should do it, but it's still something I have to hold myself accountable to and be intentional with all the time. Um, I didn't cope perfectly, but I, could not and did not see the value of using an eating disorder to cope with that period of my life. Um, it was, it would just have caused more problems. It would have taken time away from my dad and I, it would have meant that I couldn't process how important he was to me fully and feel that fully. Um, there's a reason grief hurts so much. It's because it is in part honoring the most important people uh, in our lives and 
that is a process that is a privilege in part, that you have been loved that much and you have loved someone else that much. To dull it or dim it or numb it isn't giving yourself the permission to fully feel how much this person has meant to you. Um, So no, it was never a consideration. It was never a matter of it sneaking back in, even down to how I engaged with movement at that time while I was taking care of my dad. I think I went for one walk in like three months and that was even, you know, for like a month and a half after he passed away. I didn't engage in movement intentionally more than maybe I think once a week, occasionally, it just wasn't my focus. It wasn't where my energy needed to go. It wasn't how I was best going to take care of myself. Um, That's different for different people. I'm not saying that doing anything other than that is wrong. It's just that's how I responded. Uh, That was me just following my healthy self-intuition that my focus and energy needed to go elsewhere for me to heal and make sure that I was taking care of myself. Did you or do you ever get angry at other people for eating, quote unquote, healthier? Absolutely. I think that this is a very, very normal part of the recovery process. And I say this now observing other people's recovery um, processes as I help them as a coach. There is usually a point in which the person going through recovery starts to get very annoyed and very angry at the people around them for engaging in diet culture or speaking irresponsibly about food or bodies, etc., or speaking unkindly about those things. And I absolutely went through that. I think there's a couple of reasons why we get angry and, and annoyed at a certain point. And it's usually at a point of recovery where we've done a lot of hard work and we have had to unpack some really painful realizations and beliefs that you know, we don't just hold as eating disorder sufferers, but that we see echoed and mirrored back to us by what is supposed to be an ordered world, massive quotation marks around that one. And it kind of feels like people are spitting in our face that we have gone through a really painful process to survive and save our own lives. And everyone's just talking so flippantly about restricting foods or dieting or, you know, uh, talking about what is healthy and unhealthy in ways that we know are disordered and particularly disordered for us. And just like my clients who I observe going through this process, I went through a bit of a, you know, getting up on my soapbox and wanting to save everyone and wanting to educate everyone and wanting everyone to see the light. And on one hand, that's really beautiful. It goes to show that a lot of the rewiring has taken place because these have not just become challenges or things we're trying to do, they've become a new set of beliefs and patterns and thoughts that have replaced old disordered beliefs and thoughts. So that's great. It's actually a really strong indicator of how much progress we've made. However, it can also be an incredibly invalidating part of recovery and one that, excuse my language, feels like we are pushing shit uphill. And this is what I tell everybody. It is not your job or obligation as part of your own recovery to drag people along with you or to convert people or to make them see the light. It can start to feel like in order for me to recover, like everyone else has to kind of get it and understand it and be doing in part what I'm doing and see the light. Just by your own example of 
doing something as challenging and life-altering like recovery, you don't know the impact you're having without having to, you know, teach other people or show them the light. But more importantly, a big part of what we learn in recovery is that the only thing we have real control over is our own behavior, our own thoughts, our own responses, our own beliefs. And that we can't go around controlling the world. We can't go around controlling other people. And we have to become our own gatekeepers about how much other people impact us, how much their words, their beliefs impact us, how we advocate for ourselves, how we set boundaries, and how we then challenge any disordered stuff that their comments or beliefs or these interactions might bring up within us. So yes, I absolutely like so many went through a stage of wanting everyone to, I think that's been part where my YouTube channel sort of was going for a period of time, was trying to, you know, get everyone to understand that what they were engaging in wasn't necessarily healthy or helpful, not just for eating disorder sufferers listening, but for the anyone engaging in that kind of thinking or that kind of um, rhetoric or diet culture. Um, these really, you know, black and white categories around food or movement or bodies. And as my advocacy has grown, as my role as a coach has grown, I've just kind of chilled out on it a little bit. The really big, dangerous, scary stuff like the Sarah's Day video I made, you know, when fitness influencer, when fitness influencers are irresponsible or cavalier or, you know, particularly when they are taking advantage of vulnerable populations, uh, that's a different story. But as far as the day-to-day, I pick my battles. Uh, If I feel like it's going to be beneficial to the other person and to myself, yeah, I might engage them in a conversation that helps them maybe question some of their beliefs. If I can read that it's just not going to be productive or beneficial, it's going to leave me feeling invalidated or frustrated, then I leave it alone. It is not, even as an advocate, it is not my job to educate and change everyone. So as a person going through recovery, it is not your job to educate and convert everyone. Your number one responsibility is to protect your recovery. And if walking away from these conversations feels like it is threatening your recovery or leaving you feeling depleted or apathetic or annoyed or whatever it is, then it is definitely not going to be protecting and shoring up your recovery. So guys, I don't want to make this a super long episode because you'll also see a number of the remaining questions of which there are like 15 um, (laughs) over on the channel as well. So make sure you go and check out that video that should be up. And I think I'm just going to save these for a later episode or video because I really thought I'd get through so many of them, but there are just a ton of them and they're all really fantastic. So I will be saving this in my notes and likely revisiting this in a future episode. But if you want more questions, taboo questions being answered, that will be up on YouTube. So head on over to the What Me Did Next channel to check that out right now. Like I said, those body neutrality workshop tickets are up. Uh, They tend to sell fairly quickly. So make sure you grab yours as soon as you can. And Uh, all the information about the event is over on the website. So make sure that you give it a good read before signing up. I will see you guys in another episode next week. We are back to our usual scheduled programming. Uh, Thank you for, again, just giving me a bit of a chance to get some of the life stuff sorted so I could give you my full attention. And uh, just as always, holding whatever space I can 
to navigate what is a very tricky, challenging period. Meet yourself where you are. Be as kind and gentle with yourself as others as you can be. Just know you are so valued and you are absolutely not alone. I'll see you guys next week.